Hi, I'm Isaac Dover, and welcome to Off Message. So the race for DNC chair, the, the person who's officially in charge of the Democrats' party apparatus, has become this extended, nationalized fight for the Democrats' soul at a moment when the Democrats are really at the bottom. They don't know what to do, they don't have a lot of time to fix things, and they don't have any clear leaders. And it's all been channeled into this really strange, uh, extended battle for who's going to be the chair of the DNC, of all things, which to many Democrats and even many party operatives is pretty much irrelevant and has been irrelevant for a number of years. Tom Perez is a leading candidate for the job. He's the former labor secretary for Obama's second term, ran the civil rights division of the Justice Department for Obama in the first term. I have known Tom Perez for a couple of years, covered him in a number of different situations. It first came onto my radar when I was covering the Obama White House, and I just noticed that all the time people were talking about Tom Perez, things that were coming out of the Labor Department. It became clear that in a lot of ways, Obama's second term domestic agenda was really running through the Labor Department. A lot of those executive orders that, of course, we heard a lot about were being taken care of by the Labor Department, by Tom Perez, whether it was the equal pay or uh, LGBT non-discrimination executive orders. Then there was this strange period during the uh, 2016 campaign where he actually emerged as a finalist for Hillary Clinton to pick as her running mate. That didn't work out. But he continued to be a force on the campaign trail, and that seems to have given him the bug to get involved in this DNC race. We talked about Perez's favorite thing to cook, (laughs) which he got into. And we talked a lot about Donald Trump. Uh, I think his thoughts on Trump basically get summed up by one thing that he said to me. He said, what Donald Trump and Putin have in common is that they have no moral compass. So that's Tom Perez's assessment of what he hopes to go up against as the leader of the DNC. I want to remind everybody to follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, at Isaac Dover. Email me at Isaac at Politico.com. It's just Isaac at Politico. And tell me who you want to hear, what you think of the show, what we should be asking, who we should be going after. And I will do my best to make sure that not only am I getting back to you, but that we are taking that into account as we book our guests in the coming weeks. So check out this conversation. We uh, had a couple of IPAs. We uh, sat and talked through the evening in St. Louis. I think you'll have a good time. So we are sitting here in St. Louis at Dressel's for uh, a late night interview with Tom Perez, uh, who has been all over the country talking uh, to Democratic National Committee members. But before we get to talking about Democrats, let's talk about Donald Trump. We're a month in. How does the presidency compare to what you thought it was going to be? Is it, is he doing the things? Did you believe that he was going to do the Muslim ban, that he was going to talk about deportations in a, in a real way and move on it in the way that he talked about during the campaign? Donald Trump has been a dumpster fire from the get-go. And his entire administration has been, um, you know, chaos and carnage. I mean, you you look at the Muslim ban, and you know the you look at uh, you know what they're doing to immigrants. Um, a, a mom, 
a mother of uh, two U.S. citizen children in Phoenix, deported. Mm -hmm. You look at the dreamer in Seattle uh, who's arrested. You look at the betrayal of his promise to make sure he lifts the standard of living to people. So hours, literally hours into his administration, Mm -hmm. Isaac, he issues an executive action that makes it harder for first-time home buyers to buy a home. Ten days later or so, he makes it harder for people to save for retirement. What do those two things have in common? They both help his buddies on Wall Street Mm -hmm. at the expense of folks on Main Street. Do you think Democrats didn't take him seriously enough last year during the campaign when he was saying, we'll do a travel ban, we'll do deportations, and now that's where we are? what, What Donald Trump and Putin have in common is that they have no moral compass. Their whole being is about themselves. That's why I, I really, when um, Puzder was um, ousted and, and withdrew mm-hmm. for labor secretary, I thought he was going to nominate Putin because he <laughs> might as well do it. He's already got a seat Well, what do you think of Alex Acosta? Well, um, That's your old job. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's funny because um, he was the former assistant attorney general for civil rights as well. I'll tell you, I mean, I, I find myself focused more on Puzder and, and mm-hmm. how, what a disaster he was. I mean, he, he embodied everything about Trump that is the worst about Donald Trump. I mean, you, you look at Puzder and he, said, he, he referred to his employees, his own workers, as the worst of the right. worst. He's a named plaintiff in the lawsuit to uh, invalidate our rule to make uh, sure that people who work overtime get paid for overtime. I thought Donald Trump said to ordinary Americans that I'm gonna make your life easier, I'm gonna raise your standard of living. And, and the reality is he didn't drain the swamp, he's infested it with his own folks. And, and Isaac, one more point on this. When he did, when, when Donald Trump initiated the executive action, and by the way, he will fail in his efforts Mm -hmm. to undo our rule protecting um, folks saving for retirement. And and when he did that rule, he said, and this is not a paraphrase, it's basically a quote, my friends on Wall Street didn't like it. This is the guy who said, I'm gonna look out for the, you know, for that little guy on Main Street. That couldn't be further from the truth. When you think about the vetting process that you had to go through, (laughs) to uh, be picked as the yep. labor secretary. And you see what Andy Puzder did not apparently go through uh, with the Trump folks. What does that tell you about the Trump administration, the Trump White House? Well, it's a ready fire aim White House. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll vet the person during the process of confirmation. Yeah. That's basically the approach they've taken. Or they'll vet them, they'll let the media vet them for. Exactly. Right. Why, would, why would you spend well, time Worrying about the details of but so hiring cares? people who are um, not authorized to work. Why would you spend time focused on whether you may have had a history of domestic violence? Yeah. Uh, why would you spend time focused on the fact that you know the Labor Department in no small measure because you've been a frequent flyer defendant <laughs> with the Labor Department? Maybe that makes him more uh, attuned to what the Labor Department does, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it. That's not how I would put but, it. But, what is, but why does that matter? 
What, what does it Why tell does you about matter? about the, the the White House approach overall, the Trump administration approach overall, that they're, that you're not seeing this vetting? Okay, so they didn't go through and uh, check mm. everything about Andy Puzzer's past. What was your vetting well, process was uh, I, a long questionnaire, right, and interviews and uh, all sorts of uh, other things. There's not one person in the Obama administration that ever would have gotten nominated with an iota of what was on Andrew Puzder's record, an iota of what was on Tom Price's record, an iota of what was on so many other people's records. And what we cannot allow as Democrats to happen is for massive ethics lapses to become normal. We cannot allow alternative facts to become the norm. That is an oxymoron, alternative facts. I was trained as a trial lawyer. Mm -hmm. The facts matter. The truth matters. And, and this president has a reckless disregard for the truth. And, and we need to have a truth squad that holds this president accountable. Because the reality is the economic well-being and the national security well-being of our nation is at stake. When you had to fill out those vetting forms to join the Obama administration or to become a cabinet secretary, what? How long did it take you to fill those forms out? And oh, what, like what was a, what was, it was on a them? Very, it was an appropriately arduous process. What are we talking like? Fifty pages, hundred uh, pages. Tell or? me where you worked in high school. <laughs> Seriously, tell me where you worked in college. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, I, I was, I worked on they the back knew all of your trash financial truck information. when I was in college. Right. That's one job I had to make money. And they wanted to know what I was doing then. And so you go back in time, literally decades. And, and the reality is that's the right thing to do because leaders of agencies have to set the moral tone mm -hmm. for that agency. And when, when you're the Secretary of Labor and you have been um, disregarding labor laws, you don't have the moral authority to, re to lead. So do you think Alex Acosta is a good pick now? And know that you said you, Andy Puzder was not one that you uh, supported, obviously. Well, frankly, <laughs> I have not focused on Alex Acosta's labor You've record. You've had some other stuff on your mind. Frankly, I've been a little busy <laughs> over the last week. I did spend a lot of time on Andrew Puzder because... Andrew Puzder was simply categorically unfit to serve. Let's talk about uh, just briefly your time uh, at the Justice Department. You ran the Civil Rights Division, which meant you were working on voting rights, uh, all sorts of police issues, uh, and a whole range yep. of things. Have you talked to any of the lawyers who are still there, who are working under you, who are now working for Jeff Sessions as the Attorney General and trying to see what a civil rights division means under uh, Jeff Sessions' Justice Department? I have deliberately not done that because I don't want to um, jeopardize anything for them. Mm -hmm. Because, frankly, Jeff Sessions is the guy who said, I don't know what anyone from the Dominican Republic coming to this country could offer to the United States. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Sessions, um, I mean, is, is similarly unfit to serve as the Attorney General. Do you worry about what it means for the issues that you worked on Hell at the Justice yeah. Department? Like, what's, what, how's it going to matter in people's well, lives? Hours into the administration, hours, this administration files a motion in the Texas voter ID case mm -hmm. seeking a stay of the proceeding. And let me tell your listeners what the facts are in the Texas voter ID case. I was the head of the Civil Rights Division when we sued them, Isaac. Yeah. And 
in Texas, if you go to U- University of Texas, Austin, your ID is not a permissible ID. Right. But if you have a concealed carry or you have your hunting license, that's a permissible ID. What we, um, what, what the evidence showed at trial, and these aren't our facts, these were the admissions mm-hmm. of the state of Texas. Over a 10-year period, 10 years, 46 million votes roughly were cast over that 10-year period. Zero, count them zero, reported incidents of illegal non-citizen voting and two incidents of in-person voter fraud over a 10-year period. This is a non-existent issue, but it is a staple in the Republican playbook. Why? Because it's worked for them. Their goal is to make it harder for African Americans and Latinos to vote, and we need to take that on head on. Do you think that Jeff Sessions has any real sensitivity to the experience of minority uh, citizens of America, minority voters? Well, I'm I'm not going to opine on sensitivities. What I will op- what I will comment on is actions. Mm-hmm. And you look at has his been, actions. Has he been bad H- for H- HB fifty six? Yeah was a bill that we sued the state of Alabama on. And I remember vividly meeting with the business community and for your listeners, HB 56 was a bill that was intended to allow local law enforcement to basically become immigration cops. Mm -hmm. It was modeled after uh, another bill in Arizona, SB 1070. Mm -hmm. We sued on both of those and we won. Mm And we won because they were mean-spirited. Mm-hmm. And I went down to Alabama, and I met with people. I met with the business community. And here's what they said in our meeting. Thank you for according us a courtesy mm-hmm. that our elected officials did not accord us. Because this was part of the ALEC playbook. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Sessions has said, and it's very interesting, about recusal in the context of Loretta Lynch. Mm-hmm. You know, she had the encounter with uh, President Clinton I think everybody during the campaign knows that. <laughs> that a few people might be aware of. And Jeff Sessions was one of the first to say, well, there's an appearance issue there. Mm-hmm. Well, where was he during the campaign? He was hanging with Flynn right. the entire time. So Jeff Sessions needs to read his own rhetoric and hold himself to the same standard that he articulated literally months ago. Because what happened in this election as it relates to Russian interference, if the tables had been turned Mm -hmm. and Hillary Clinton won with the assistance of the Russians, she wouldn't have been seated by these Republicans. 15 investigations on Benghazi, and they would have... They would have filed articles of impeachment before the election. And here we are. And now they got a sock in their mouth with a couple exceptions. But by and large, the, the absolute appalling silence mm-hmm. that you see there is unconscionable. And Jeff Sessions has no authority to be part of the investigation. That, it, it, is, it is disrespectful to all foxes across America to say that the fox is guarding the hen house with this case. So you're the labor secretary before that a civil rights lawyer. What is the moment when, the, the, when you decide I'm going to run for DNC chair? It's a, it's a strange progression. Uh, not one that, uh, other RNC or DNC chairs have had. <laughs> what, what's that click through? Is it well, on November in, in 8th? In the aftermath of the election. 
I ask the question that I've always asked at every fork in the road in my life professionally, which is, how can I help the most people um, who are in need? I mean, my, my, I've been in public service, local level, state level, right. federal level for my entire career. And, uh, you know, after the election, and I, I didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. I, I need to be honest. Nobody I, did. I, uh, I had a very high level of confidence that um, Secretary Clinton would win, and she did win the popular vote, uh, but uh, we have an electoral college. And so uh, in the aftermath of the election, that was kind of a where were you moment, because this Donald Trump, I think, is the most dangerous president in American history, and I wanted to make sure that I was part of the fight. But, but when, is, when does that click through, okay, I'm DNC chair? Well, I had, had prearranged um, international travel mm -hmm. immediately after the election. So I left um, on a trip to Peru and Argentina. I was gone for roughly a week. As vacation? And no, 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 a work trip. Yeah. Uh, we do international mm -hmm. labor work. And I, <laughs> I had a meeting with the president of Peru two days after the election mm -hmm. in which he was asking, in effect, what the hell happened? <laughs> So and, the president uh, of Peru convinced you to run for DNC and, chair? And we talked about the <laughs> DNC chair immediately at that time. Um, and, and he has a lot of U.S. ties, actually. Mm -hmm. His wife, uh, I believe, is from Wisconsin. And so, um, so I was doing, we do, we do a lot of labor rights work mm -hmm. around the world. And so when I got back, um, I started to reflect on how do I continue to make a difference? That's the question I've always asked. And, and, you know, the thing that I've loved, Isaac, about all the opportunities I've had in the Obama administration mm -hmm. and beforehand is, you know, at the Labor Department, we help people at scale. Yeah. You know, there's nothing more fulfilling than when your kid asks you, what did you do today? Well, we helped two million home health workers, mostly women of color on food stamps, get access to minimum wage and overtime protections. On January 20th, we relinquished or we, we transitioned that mm -hmm. authority to help those two million home health workers and so many others in need to the Republicans. Yeah. And my own view was that one of the most important ways in which I can continue to help people at scale is to make sure that we have a strong Democratic Party in every single state. Because when we have a well-functioning Democratic Party that enables people from the school board to the Senate to get elected, then we can put our values in action, whether it's at a local level, a state level, or a federal level. You were one of the people who, I think to the surprise of, of some folks, was, was a, a finalist for Hillary Clinton to pick as a running mate. Do you think if she'd picked you, she'd be the president right now? Oh, I, I don't. I've never. <laughs> and and let me let me ask you the that. question no, that, no. this way: they, they, She picked Tim Kaine, and nothing against Senator Kaine, but there is uh, he he was the pick that everybody sort of expected all along. It was part of a presidential campaign from Hillary Clinton that was doing almost every time exactly what everybody expected her to do. So whether she would have picked you or some someone else who would have been not the exact expected thing was that the problem with her campaign? Right, well, let me let me be very clear. I'm an <laughs> unabashed fan of Tim Kaine, and I was one of the first people uh, when his it's true when she announced her, his selection to say congratulations because Tim Kaine is a civil rights lawyer. He did fair housing yeah. work. He's a person after my heart, 
And so uh, I um, have nothing but profound respect for him and what he's accomplished at a local level, a state level, and at a federal level. And we did not prevail in the election. And, and obviously, uh, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on the things we could have done differently. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and, and I'm, we all have as Democrats. Right. And, and, and obviously, the, the Comey letter made a difference. Yeah. And, and the Russian hack made a difference. And Julia Assange did made she, a difference. Did she mess we, up the campaign, also, though? Well, no. We all made mistakes that had implications. Mm-hmm. I think Democrats need to make more House calls because it's important to remember that we did pick up a couple seats in the Senate, mm-hmm. a few seats in the House, mm-hmm. and we won the popular vote. At the same time, it's important to note that over the last eight years, we've lost over 900 seats in state houses. So when I ask the question, you know, what happened, I don't simply focus on what happened in November of 2016. I ask the question, what's been going on for the last eight years? Because that's what the Democratic Party has to address. And we've got to get back to basics. We, I'm firmly of the belief that we can help people in need at scale again only if we're building strong parties everywhere only if we change the culture of the democratic national committee in a number of ways Mm -hmm. first we have to redefine our mission as not simply to elect the president of the united states but to elect candidates up and down the ticket at a local state and federal level including but not limited to you know the school board the senate secretaries of state Attorneys general, we, we've seen the importance of state attorneys general as we successfully challenged um, the unconscionable Muslim ban. That's the first dimension of culture change. The second dimension of culture change is we've got to do a much better job of coordinating with our partners in the progressive movement because you know Republicans took back Florida in no small measure because after 2012, there was a partnership between the RNC, the Koch brothers, and the nonprofit infrastructure, the grassroots infrastructure mm-hmm. in Florida, to door knock a, a, a four-year, 12-month-a-year organizing effort at a grassroots level to find Republicans who were off the political grid. They found 130,000 or so such Republicans and that was a difference maker Yeah, in 2016. And the final dimension of culture change is how we interact with our own members of the DNC and our own um, rank-and-file Democrats. We've, we've got a, we, we have this opaque, um, top-down, you know, um, Al Haig command-and-control structure in which DNC members are chronically underutilized. Um, We've ignored wide swaths of America. Uh, we don't have an every zip code strategy. And, and we, have, we have to change that culture so that we're engaging people. I, I met a person on my rural tour in Northwest Wisconsin who said to me, I feel politically homeless. Mm-hmm. And, and we, need to, we need to re-engage that person. So tell me something about each of your uh, opponents that makes that should make the the DNC members on Saturday decide that in fact Tom Perez is the right person to vote for. 
what is it? What what's wrong with your your opponents when they're when you're thinking? Oh, about I think this we question? have a great stable candidates, and um, yeah, but you want to win. This is of course, <laughs> but I'm I, you know, the media has been very disappointed in our debates <laughs> because there was no chair throwing, there was nobody who asked for the size of people's hands or other parts of their anatomy. It was very boring in that regard, and what we were instead having was a spirited, um, respectful debate about the future of the Democratic Party. But and, why, why and are what, you the, the one who should win? Sure. Well, I, I think the, the head of the DNC needs to be someone who can take the fight to Donald Trump, a proven fighter who not only is a fighter but knows how to win fights, someone who understands the importance of organizing because we have fallen short in no small measure because we haven't done enough organizing. And, and my roots in Maryland, you know, uh, helping to build... Um, a nonprofit from the basement of a church to a powerhouse in the mid-Atlantic. I learned that power of organizing. We need someone who can bring together every stakeholder group in the party, and we need somebody who is a proven turnaround agent because we have to change the culture of the DNC. And, and when I was at the Department of Labor and before that the Department of Justice, that was the same mission. We had to do turnaround at scale mm -hmm. at the Department of Labor, and we were able to do that. And that's really important. This, the, the department, the, the Democratic Party is a complex organization, and it's not firing on all cylinders at the moment. And we need someone who understands how to turn around complex organizations. And that's what I have had the privilege of doing over the last eight years. Is the model essentially what Reince Priebus did at the RNC in getting it to be a functional organization? I, no, the model for us is to make sure we, get, we, we, we do every dimension of culture change, redefining our mission so that we're working with local and state government, state parties, et cetera, redefining our relationships with our colleagues in the progressive movement, thinking long-term. We don't think long-term. You know, we, we, we are all too frequently going campaign to campaign. You can't show up, you know, every 4th October at a church and call that organizing. That we, we lost Wisconsin because we underperformed in Milwaukee and we got our butts kicked in rural Wisconsin because we haven't had a presence there for years. And so that's, that's, that's on us. The knock against you, or one of the big knocks against you in running for this position is that you uh, have been elected to one office. It was to Montgomery County Council. You were a candidate for attorney general, uh, state attorney general in Maryland, kicked off the ballot on a technicality. Those races were 10 plus years ago that you have, don't have the campaign experience, right, uh, of your own campaign experience. So what's the? how are you the person who brings what, the party needs to do now in 2017 with all sure. the changes with all everything that has changed about how elections are run even the last 18 months two years well i think if you look at the history of the dnc and the rnc and who has excelled and who hasn't i'm not sure there's correlation mm -hmm. between oh if you're elected an official and ran 10 times you must have excelled i think our Recent history in the DNC would suggest that that's not an indicator of success. And similarly, um, I don't think 
um, you know, Reince Ryan, Priebus, I, I don't recall that he was the senator from Wisconsin. Right. I do but recall, he had run a number of successful well, campaigns. And, or, and, and he was also, you look at Ron Brown, you look at others who did very good work. You, you look at uh, Paul Kirk, um, who wasn't an elected official until, right, until Senator Kennedy um, passed away. And, uh, and so I don't know that there's correlation between you have to have run for office um, multiple times in order to be the head of the DNC. The DNC is a complex organization, and, it, and, and good leaders are good listeners. We were second from the bottom in best places to work at the Department of Labor when I got there. And when, when I left, we were in the top third. We were able to change that culture of the Department of Labor. That's what we need to do at the DNC. You seem to be making an allusion to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the DNC chair uh, for five plus years until uh, everything happened over the summer with the WikiLeaks. At that point, it wasn't WikiLeaks officially, uh, right? Uh, the, the emails that came out uh, led to her resignation. She was elected to Congress uh, five times more than that, state Senate races before that. So that was the wrong experience. Too. Well, I, I mean, mean, how no, much of what's but, but wrong again, with no, the DNC no, the, is the because of her I leadership? Said, the, point I, the point I made in that was there have been elected officials who have excelled. Right. And there have been elected officials who haven't excelled. There have been non-elected officials or people who don't have a long history of um, elected service who have excelled. And there have been people who don't have a long history of elected service who haven't. So if, if, the, if you're trying to figure out whether uh, you have to have run for office five times in order to succeed, I don't think the history either on the Republican or the Democratic side bears that out. There's a strong and deep reservoir of appreciation among rank and file members of the DNC for Tim Kaine and the work he did. And and so again, was Debbie um, Wasserman Schultz a good chair for the DNC? Well, I, you know, again, I think that what we saw at the end of the of the day was, um, you know, the lack of um, uh, transparency hurt her. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that the head of the DNC has to be somebody who every single day, um, in both your practice and your perception, yeah, in what you do. And how you live, and that's the same way but for was a cabinet Was it just the lack of transparency that you, you, you was your issue to, with her? Well, it's hard to do that job when you're a member of Congress. I don't think you should have somebody who's a full-time member of Congress being the head of the DNC. It's impossible because you got too much stuff going on. Yeah, and you can't you can't devote the energy that is necessary, and and you have to exude neutrality in everything you do. If I were the if I have the privilege of getting elected Isaac, one of the things that I would do is to, um, for instance, set the primary debate schedule long before we know who the nominee is so that there can be no doubt of uh, the neutrality of the chair in that process because the, the, the absence of that, uh, of, of setting it early enough so that there was no doubt you know, that obviously created a, a trust gulf. You had dinner with Keith Ellison, congressman mm -hmm. from Minnesota, who's seen as your main rival in the race the other night. What did you guys talk about? We talked about our mutual commitment to the unity of the Democratic Party. Keith is a friend. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, when you say he's a friend, did you actually know him before this race? Oh, absolutely. You know, we worked on the conflict of interest rule, which is one of the most important issues of retirement security that the president put forth. Um, our our commitment to the fight for 15. We did a lot of work there. I appeared before the Progressive Caucus any number of times um, because we have those shared values. And we were we had dinner because we want to be clear. There is, and I don't think I simply speak for Keith. I think I speak for all the candidates. There's not one candidate in this race that wants to win at any cost. That's not who we are. This is a conversation among siblings about who should lead the party. And at the end of the day, I am 1,000% certain that we will join hands and move forward because we have a shared existential threat. That is Donald Trump and the Republican leadership. Do you think that he, he had Ray Buckley, the New Hampshire chair, who was running, endorse him uh, a couple days ago? Does that seem like it was part of an arranged deal to you? Is that, uh, is that the kind of thing that should be happening in this race? Well, I'll leave that to others to decide. I'm keeping my head down, moving forward. I have great respect for Ray. Ray has brought a lot to the party. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, whatever they, uh, agreed to, you know, that's up to them. I'm all about moving forward and I feel like we're in a good position. We got a lot more work to do. Uh, we're not at the summit of the mountain yet, but, uh, we're making progress, I considerable know, progress. You, you have said that you want everybody to have a role in the future of the party of the other candidates yep. do you, with some specificity. Do you have something picked out for what you'd want Keith Ellison to do if you're the elected chair? Well, you know, we have both agreed that we will help each other. Whoever but what does wins. that mean? Well, and that's what, we, what I think. Well, part of it is uh, making sure that we're together in the community because, you know, there have been moments when people have had, I think, a misperception that, oh, my goodness, you must have a wide gulf between you. And the answer is we are aligned on so many issues of critical importance. And, and we have both in our campaigns um, aspired to and I think succeeded in modeling that behavior for folks because we can't spend an iota of time talking about the past. We have to focus on the immigrant communities that are getting targeted. We've got to focus on the, 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 the president's unmitigated assault on democracy, the, 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 the swamp he's filling mm -hmm. that's full of uh, Wall Street billionaires and, and, and the carnage that is being wreaked as a result of that. So even for some Democrats who really don't like Trump, wish he were nowhere near the White House, there's a sense uh, among some that he's a, a necessary corrective to the party, that he's made the party wake up to what it should be paying attention to and how it needed to change. Do you think that that's right? Couldn't disagree with that more. I mean, Donald Trump is anathema to America. Donald Trump's anathema to all the values of America. And we are going to wake up. We have woken up every single day because I'll tell you, January, <clears throat> excuse me, January 20th was um, a sad day for me, but January 21st was far more important because what we have seen across America and it's, is not simply the longtime activists marching 
insane. Donald Trump, you don't stand for our values. But folks who have been what I would refer to as kind of casual participants in our democracy, I've met so many of them in my travels, and they come up to me and they say, Tom, you know, I'm embarrassed that I was a casual voter. I'm embarrassed that, you know, I, I saw democracy as a spectator sport. So, and I understand that it can't be point me in the right direction. That's the opportunity the Democratic Party has right now. But do you see a value for the Democratic Party in that? That these people who there's were no, casual observers who... There's no value when somebody's getting deported because... Uh, I mean, Donald Trump cares more about deporting Abuelita than about protecting the security of this nation. And, and there's no value in that. Do you worry that he has driven a permanent wedge between the Democratic Party and some people who were Democratic voters, uh, some of the, the working class voters, some people who were drifting away from the Democratic Party for years and seem to have been drawn to the populist message that he is now attached to the Republican Party? Not if we do our job right. And our job has to be to get out there and have a 12-month organizing strategy across America. You know, we can't, we, we can't cede whole cloths of, uh, a whole swaths of uh, our geography to the Republican Party. When we get out there and educate people that the Democratic Party has been the party of the middle class, the Democratic Party brought this nation Social Security, brought this nation Medicare. The Republican Party has been the party that wants to privatize Social Security and voucherize uh, Medicare. The Democratic Party, you look at the last 36 years since Ronald Reagan became president, 20 years of Republican rule in the White House, 16 years of Democratic rule. Net new private sector job growth in the 20 years of Republican rule was about 16 million. Net new private sector job growth of 16 years, four years less of Democrats, was over 32 million. The Democratic Party is the party of job creation. The Democratic Party is the party of the union movement. And Donald Trump has nominated a person who, to the Supreme Court who, if confirmed, will eviscerate the union movement and eviscerate uh, protections for women. And, and we've got to take that message directly to um, families across America. And when we do our job well, this will be a temporary moment in our history, just like the Know Nothing movement of the mid-19th century. Is Barack Obama still the leader of the Democratic Party? I miss Barack Obama every single day. And I was at an <laughs> Have event. you talked to him since he left office? I have not talked to him in person. Uh, I have talked to friends from the administration who have talked to him. But, uh, you know, I think he's going to go down as one of the most consequential presidents in American history. And, and it wasn't just what he accomplished. But I think with every passing day, Americans appreciate how he did it. Because this is a chaos presidency. We've already seen uh, how long, I, I don't know who lasted longer, Pope John Paul I or, or Flynn um, as the national security um, advisor. And, and, and chaos is the order of the day. And when, this, when President Obama was there, I mean, he exuded calm under pressure. And, and that's what this nation needs because the stakes are way too high. But is he still the leader politically of the party? Well, I think he'll always be a leader in the, in but the not Democratic the Party. Well, I mean, we have many leaders. I think the leaders of this party right now are the millions of people 
who are marching, who but are the, saying that, you know what, Donald Trump, you don't stand for who we are. Barack Obama is an organizer, and he understands that power comes from the bottom up. But a lot of those people that you say, the leaders of the party, are people who don't feel connected to the Democratic Party. And that's the challenge for Democrats, right. because... Um, I was at the Houston airport in uh, San Francisco marching with, uh, during, marching with protesters. And I, I didn't take a survey, right. but I'm pretty confident, Isaac, that there were a substantial number of people there who were not registered Democrats. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge and the opportunity for Democrats right now is not to sit there with clipboards saying you need to register with our party, but to be there side by side with people and to demonstrate through our actions. Actions speak louder than words. And when we lead with our actions and demonstrate that if it's climate that you care about, so do we. If it's immigration reform, so do we. If it's making sure we protect our religious minority communities, so do we. When we're doing that day in and day out, I think that's how we succeed in taking back America. When we're there with the labor movement, that's how we take back those working class um, union members who voted for Donald Trump because they're going to see that, you know what, he's trying to eviscerate collective bargaining. His vice president got rid of the prevailing wage when he led Indiana. Uh, he may have a nice smile, but between, that, between those uh, you know, smiles stands a person who wants to make it harder for folks to organize. Does Obama's OFA group need to step out of the way and let the DNC occupy that space? You have all these other groups like uh, Center for American Progress, Priorities, uh, David Brock's organizations that are trying to have a piece of this. Uh, you've even got uh, your friend Eric Holder running this re redistricting group uh, with Barack Obama's support. Does is there a danger of that getting too splintered? Aren't those, isn't well, that what the DNC well, does? Well, when I talked about culture change at the DNC, yeah. I, I, there are many dimensions of culture change. And one dimension is we have to do a far better job of coordinating with our partners in the progressive movement. That is imperative because the Republicans have been doing it for some time. And we have to do it consistent with all the FEC requirements. And we have to build within the party, the organizing capacity. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that the OFA structure had the effect of um, diminishing uh, the organizing capacity within the Democratic Party. And so we gotta go to school on that. Yeah. We've gotta learn from that. And we can. I, I met someone recently from the Democracy Alliance, who for your listeners who, who may not be familiar with the Alliance, is a group of wealthy donors who care about progressive issues. And, and this person said to me, um, you know, Tom, I hear you're running, um, good luck. And by the way, you know, we really don't think much about the Democratic Party, we're sort of on our own. <laughs> to which I said, therein lies the problem. Because the Republicans figured out that when you have better collaboration between the party, your donor community, and your grassroots community, that's how you succeed. Republicans figured out long ago the importance of thinking long-term. And, and ALEC and, and some of these other pillars of the far-right movement were created out of that long-term thinking. We've got to do a better job, and that's what culture change is about, is making sure that we're, we're collaborating with our partners, whether it's the labor movement, whether it's Planned Parenthood, whether it's 
um, these emerging um, uh, groups that are, are, are really growing organically. We've got to be there with them. Let's finish off with the speed round. Who's your favorite cartoon character? Probably Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> Which one? Well, you know, that was a good Cold War cartoon theory. Uh, and uh, I kind of liked Rocky because he was a little faster. Uh, who's the first person you voted for? 1980, Jimmy so, Carter. And uh, you've been on the road for a while. Uh, I'm sure you're ready to get home and be home. What's the, when, when you get into the kitchen, what's the best meal that you, you make? Well, the best meal that was made for me, because I have to be honest <laughs> that I've been on the road so much I haven't been able to cook. I do cook some of but my But when mother's. you cook, what's the... Oh, oh what's picadillo, your, yeah. uh, which is a wonderful Dominican dish of uh, shredded ground beef with a number of vegetables, <laughs> and, uh, and I'll have you over, Isaac, okay. for it. It's, uh, <laughs> When's the my, last time with all this campaigning? About a month ago, <laughs> and I have a close friend who is um, Cuban-American, and there's Cuban picadillo and Dominican picadillo, and they're different. And when I was at the Justice Department, he was my chief of staff, and we had a picadillo cook-off. And who won? And thank God, well, I was the boss. <laughs> so, you know, Who were the judges? So The judges were our subordinates. <laughs> so I won unanimously, I'm told. <laughs> I guess you'll have to see if uh, Saturday works out the same way. Correct. <laughs> All right, Tom Perez, thank you for joining us for a late-night beer here in St. Louis. Always a pleasure. 